this education really needs to be given to financial planners and financial planners need to be having these more engaging conversations with their clients. You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. I'm excited to introduce Amy Mullen to the listeners. She is Vice President of Money Quotient, a nonprofit that is leading the profession in taking research and applying that research to better our clients' experience. They take the life planning concepts and have created very practical delivery methods so firms can consistently provide those services to many clients. The work they do is pretty incredible, and having talked with many advisors who use their program, Money Quotient is truly making an impact on clients and firms. If you're interested in the Money Quotient program, be sure to apply for their Ken Gillespie Scholarship to attend the Fundamentals of Financial Life Planning training in September. The deadline for the scholarship is June 30th, and you can find more information in the show notes at financialplannerpodcast.com or by going to Money Quotient's website. Here's our interview with Amy. Well, thanks for joining us today, Amy. I'm happy to. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for the listeners who don't know you, you are Vice President of Money Quotient. Um, And before we start talking about Money Quotient, because there's so much good stuff to talk about there, I would love for you to share more of your personal story. How did you start in the financial services profession and what does your career track look like? Well, it kind of fell into my lap, to be totally honest. It was not an intentional direction that I was taking. I actually originally went to school for photography and I actually had my own um, small photography business for a couple of years. Oh, I also worked at a professional photo lab developing film for other professional photographers as well. To make a long story short, my mother actually asked me if I would help her start this business of hers that she had in mind that I honestly had no idea about. And she offered to pay the same amount of money that I was getting paid at this professional photo lab. And her offer to me was that if she could pay me the same amount, then it would allow me the time to build my photography business and also help her get her business going. This business happened to be Money Quotient. And um, I honestly had no idea what exactly she was starting. And I had a lot to learn. um, But over a very short period of time, fell in love with the work myself. Um, So this was in 2002, she asked me to come and help her start um, this business. And so I agreed and found out that a lot of the work that she'd been doing prior to starting Money Quotient was she had a small research and writing business where she would work with various nonprofit organizations and uh, help them conduct research projects, and also develop educational materials around various topics like baby boomers and retirement or women in finance. And her interests lie a lot around what really engaged individuals in taking action steps in their financial lives towards their retirement and what motivated them to get the education they needed to um, take the financial steps necessary. So that was a a strong interest of hers. 
And she had a lot of research under her belt and um, also went into studying psychology, communication, biology, how the brain works and makes decisions and pulled a lot of this information together to develop educational materials that the hope was that it would engage individuals more and motivate them to take the steps necessary. So over time, over about a 10-year period, she had developed a, a library of materials from these various projects that she had done with different nonprofits. And she had an idea that the people who should be utilizing these resources were financial planners because financial planners were very uniquely positioned to understand a lot of what was going on in people's lives and to help them align the various aspects of their financial life to you know what they truly wanted um, and what their goals were and what their values were. So you know her ultimate, goal was to help the end consumer, help society with um, their education, financial literacy, and helping them to align their spending and savings habits with their values and, and their goals, but looked at the financial planners as an avenue to a broader reach to those consumers. So when she was starting in the early 90s, so she wasn't a financial planner. She was just like a writer and researcher? Correct. Yeah. So she actually was working as a administrative person for an Edward D. Jones company. And her role in that company was to basically help to explain statements to their clients. And her interest in this all began when she started to realize that individuals who had their financial situations in order and knew what they were doing, you know, had it well laid out, were not the type of people that she thought in other or or the the people that she thought would have everything organized didn't have things organized. The doctors and the lawyers and and the people with those kind of high stature professions were seemed to be the people who were the most disorganized, didn't understand what was going on in their financial lives, were kind of the least educated around that area. And then here walks in a local fisherman, and he very well understood everything that was going on in his financial life. He had everything organized, had plans for the future, everything was in line. And this just didn't really stick with her stereotypes, I guess, just didn't necessarily fit with what she thought would be the traits of an individual who would have their stuff together like that. So that's where her interests about, you know, what was it that engaged some individuals in seeking out their own financial education and getting their things in order what engaged and motivated some individuals and what was lacking from other situations? Where was this lack of motivation coming from in, in other situations? So that was the, the thing that piqued her interest. So she never was a financial planner, but she, what, she had her toes in the financial services industry. And that's kind of what piqued her into interest. And so when she went back to school, she went back for her master's degree, this 
interest in what engaged and motivated people to take action in their financial lives is what drove her decision as to what she would study in her master's degree program. So she found a, a program out of the home econo economics department that was um, already in the works that was kind of researching the various demographics and characteristics of individuals and what was the common thread between those who were engaged and took action steps towards retirement. There was already this research that was started that she was able to tap into in her master's studies, which was really cool. So she wrote a thesis about that. What were the factors that led to people engaging and taking action in their retirement planning? Um, and that led to her wanting to start this research and writing organization, which she just called Carol A. Anderson Research. And she just had probably two or three clients at a time. A lot of times they were nonprofit organizations and they were either conducting research projects or they were developing kind of educational workshops or resources based on this research. And she did that for about 10 years. And that's, you know, over that 10 year period, she began to formulate the idea of money quotient and how this education really needs to be given to financial planners. And financial planners need to be having these more engaging conversations with their clients. What can financial planners do to better engage their clients in these conversations and, and then ultimately get better results on the other end. Um, in other words, more implementation of the recommendation, more action steps after the education was given. How, you know, what does the financial planner need to do to guide their clients to more implementation of the financial strategies? And so that's the birth of money quotient, basically. How do we get financial planners to understand how to better engage their clients? You know, there's a lot of talk about behavioral finance. I mean, and that sounds almost exact. It sounds exactly like what you're talking about and what this research was really based on. I mean, would you agree or? Yeah, to an extent, though, because it's interesting um, that I kind of feel that behavioral, the, the study of behavioral finance kind of takes it in a different direction. And here's what I mean by that. Um, behavioral finance has a lot to do with studying humans' reactions to things, you know? Um, so humans' reactions to what the market is doing or, um, uh, humans reactions in certain situations and and why they go in certain directions or why they fail to act in certain ways or you know um so it's it it's um i kind of look at it as these lab attendants watching how mice in a maze move around and how they react to certain stimuli you know and then trying to think about how can we maneuver the situation or manipulate the situation to get the mice to go the direction that they should be going. Um, so behavioral finance takes a view 
in my opinion, this is my opinion, um, behavioral finance takes a view of humans as unable to think and make decisions, healthy decisions for themselves on their own. And that we as financial planners need to in some way manipulate the situation to get them to make the right decisions. And the approach that we take is quite a bit different. Of course, that research is very important and it does help us to understand human behaviors and it does need to be considered when uh, we create education and when we create programs and when we are counseling our clients. All of that is very important. But when we bring in research from psychology, from communications, from biology, like how the brain works, how we filter information, how we make decisions, what parts of our brains are responsible for making decisions, um, and how are our, our emotions involved in those decisions. When we look as the, at a human as being a whole and capable person of making um, healthy decisions for themselves, then our education and our research is more about how do we help them discover and raise their own level of self-awareness to a place where they can feel a sense of clarity and can feel as though they understand the situation, the pros and cons of each decision, and make an educational um, decision for themselves. And Although behavioral finance definitely has a very important role in our research and in the development of our education and our materials, it is not the only lens that's important to look through. And, and I would also argue that it's not necessarily the most fiduciary perspective. <laughs> you know, when we talk about a financial planner's fiduciary duty to put the client's interest first. From a behavioral finance perspective, financial planners are more kind of manipulating the environment to get clients to make, a de make decisions that the financial planner thinks is in their best interest. But ultimately, it's the client who needs to decide what is in their own best interest. Financial planners can have their own um, biases, you know, their own beliefs and biases that cloud their own perspective of what might be the client's most be best interest. But if we're acting as true fiduciaries, then we need to be spending the time truly getting to know the client's perspective the client's values, the client's um, preferences, and, and, and work with them to open up their level of awareness so that they can make the decision that's in their best interest. That's what it means to be a true fiduciary. And that's not something you can do in an online questionnaire. Like what you're talking about is deeper than just running people through a system. Oh yeah, for sure. The advisors who work with us at Money Quotient, none of them fear robo-advisors because they all understand the guiding to deeper understanding 
and and the raising of level of self-awareness, that can't be done by just typing in your answers to a questionnaire. There is multiple parts of the process that are necessary for a human, for an individual to raise their level of self-awareness. Answering questions is part one. This is, yes, we're planting seeds, we're helping them to begin their thinking around particular topic areas, but then discussing those answers, discussing the context behind those answers with another human being and having that human being paraphrase it back to you, mirror it back to you, maybe even, you know, add in some additional ideas or context and add more to that conversation is where the real insights and the real ahas tend to occur. The conversation part of it is crucial to it. Um, so that will never be replaced by robo-advisors. And so therefore, you know, advisors who are doing this more holistic approach to financial planning, they really aren't afraid of needing to compete with robo-advisors. There will be, it may not be... <clears throat> widespread in terms of consumers understanding the difference um, as of yet with you know what it means to work just online with a robo advisor and you know plugging in numbers and getting some figures back with sitting face to face with a financial planner there they may not understand at this point the difference but they will it will become more and more clear, you know, what the advantages are and, you know, the deeper level of clarity and understanding that having that relationship will provide. I, it, it's just a matter of time, honestly. And, and I think that it's already starting to show that that consumers really want a relationship. There will always be people who just jump onto those quick online things and plug in their numbers. There will always be those, those individuals who do that, they, who believe they are do-it-yourselfers and I just wanna know if I plug in this number, what, what this calculator will tell me. That will always be, and, and robo-advisors will be a useful tool for a lot of financial planners, um, but, it will never replace the face-to-face -face relationship that a planner and a client have together. Let's talk a little bit about money quotient. And it's easy to say like, yeah, these are like, this is great to have these conversations, but like, what does that actually look like? And how does money quotient actually help advisors become better at these conversations with their clients? Well, okay. So backing up a couple of steps, Money Quotient, we're a nonprofit organization. We're a 503C, wait, 501C3. Sorry. I always get those numbers um, entangled in my head. Um, so we are all about research and education. And this is, you know, a real passion of my mother's and now also a passion of mine that everything that we put out there is very research-based and evidence-based. So we, um, you know, one thing that I think really differentiates our organization from others who are offering advisors, you know, more of a, a, a life planning type training um, or, or process, uh, one of the big differentiators for us is that we are 
research-based um, and evidence-based. So we bring in research from all kinds of dif different disciplines. I already mentioned, you know, a, lots of different fields within psychology as well. So psychology is the overarching umbrella, but there's so many um, important pieces within psychology that have been applied to the development of our resources and our um, process and our training. But biology, sociology, effective communication, you know, what, what makes for a good working relationship, some of those basic communication skills are not taught to financial planners. You know, how do you have a good, healthy working relationship? So that is brought in as well. Um, and, and we take this, the viewpoint from these different disciplines and we apply them to how a planner could most effectively work with their clients. So um, what it actually looks like is we have a whole suite of resources. Um, a lot of them are questionnaires that the client would complete within a client meeting or as homework, and then they're discussed with the advisor. And so the, the questionnaires are sequenced in a certain way to guide the client's thinking, help them to raise their level of awareness in different aspects of their financial lives, and, um, and have facilitated conversation with their advisor to continue deepening that understanding, deepening that um, uh, discovery to ultimately bring about clarity and, um, and some basis for decision-making. So within this process, there's a few very specific outcomes. One, there's an exploration of their biography, you know, how they got to where they are now. And understanding various influences that they've had, you know, so in other words, how did they develop their perspective on their financial life? How did they develop their current habits when it comes to spending and saving? And so most people were not taught specific lessons by their parents or in school. I mean, financial education is not a requirement in most schools. So most people developed their habits around their financial lives simply by observing what other people were doing, either observing their parents or other family members or observing, you know, friends and, and how they, what they did with their money. And a lot of this was happening in the subconscious they weren't really aware that they were picking up these beliefs and these habits from other people. And they just, as they became adults, they just started either, well, usually people either mimic what they've seen done. So they're following exactly what they've observed, or they do the absolute opposite of maybe what their parents did. But, they, but a lot of it is done in the subconscious. They're not necessarily aware of it. They're just living their day-to-day -day life, um, kind of, you know, having their habits. So part of it is an, a little bit of an exploration of, you know, how did your parents um, manage their money? Did they talk with you about money? Did you observe, you know, did one parent pay the bills or what did you observe? And how do you think that has influenced 
the way that you manage your money today. And there's some really amazing insights that come from those conversations. And the, um, the point of it is so that they become aware of their current habits and they can make a decision. Are these habits that I currently have serving me well? Are they helping me to be successful? Sometimes they are. And just their awareness um, helps them to be more mindful about it and think, yeah, I need to do more of this. I, I want to continue um, having the savings and spending habits that I did, and maybe I'll even do more of it. Other people recognize that the, the habits that I have are not serving me well, and then they can make a mindful decision as to how do I want to adjust what I'm doing to help me be more successful. But what you can see here is that the financial planner is no longer in a position to push or pull them in a particular direction, try to get them to have better spending and savings habits. The person is recognizing what they're doing and making a decision on their own as to whether it's helping them succeed or not. And, and therefore, you know, they, they start to monitor their own behaviors. It takes the advisor out of the parental type position. An exploration of their history and understanding of their beliefs and behaviors around money is a part of the process. Another part of the process is to uncover what core values are. And so we do this in a little bit of a different way. We don't lay out a bunch of values and have them circle, you know, which ones they feel are most important because I believe that that actually leads to them not necessarily identifying core values. They may be circling some of the values that they think they better circle or their spouse might get unhappy with them. You know, I better circle family because my wife is sitting right next to me and she'll get upset with me if that's not one of my top priorities. Or I'm sitting in front of a financial expert and so I better circle security because they're, you know, that's what they expect. You know, so there's influences, external influences that, that might be at play there. So the way that we uncover values is by asking questions that kind of naturally bring the values out. We ask about um, what activities that they enjoy doing that bring that kind of intrinsic reward. What, what, what things are you involved in what activities do you do and what people are you around that bring you that sense of intrinsic reward? And that tends to bring out core motivations, core values. These are things that, are, that they are passionate about and that they actually want to take action on. So if you base goals off of those type of values, then people are far more motivated to take action on those goals. So in other words, like we'll say that, I'll give you an example. A person may say, oh, I just come alive when, well, I'll use myself an example. I love being in the dark room and I love playing with the chemistry and creating a piece of art with the chemistry, I love the smell of the chemistry, I love the math and science of figuring out how to create this photograph, um, but the uh, also the right brain side of it, of, of really thinking about how the art, the piece of art speaks to something that I want to say, 
I love photography. Time flies by when I do that. And, and so creating a goal of say, um, creating a little art studio in the backyard of my house is going to get me super motivated and excited to now look at my cash flow, to now look at my investments, to um, see how I can, you know, allocate cer certain assets towards that specific goal. So, do you see how when we find some sort of value and some sort of goal that is intrinsically motivating to them, then they will be much more willing to um, look at some of the financial aspects to getting there. So that's a part of it, uncovering the core values. Um, that leads into creating a vision. We want them to create a real detailed vision of an ideal future, of them living the life that's going to be meaningful and purposeful them, for them because it's that vision that's going to end up being the filter for their decision-making. Um, and be and be the motivating piece for them to follow through on the financial strategies. When they have a vision that they're super excited about, they start saying, okay, what do I need to do to get there? And that's when you tie in the financial education and that's when you tie in you know, the strategies and you get a much higher level of follow through and you get very grateful clients because now they have this great sense of clarity they're excited about their futures and that financial planner becomes like an amazing superstar to them that's about developing lifelong relationships right there so that's kind of the the what the process entails well, what i love so much about this is that it takes the pressure off of financial planners Right. It does. Totally, completely. It makes the financial planner um, kind of removes them. I mean, they are an expert in the financial stuff. That is, and the, the financial expertise is still extremely important. But what it does is it makes the financial planner more of a partner or a facilitator of a process. You're guiding the client to making decisions on their own. Um, and so they, they're acting as, oh, we like to say they're acting as a partner, a guide, and an educator. Um, rather than, I'm gonna tell you what to do, uh, they, they're now saying, I'm going to help you figure out what you want to do. And so in your experience, I mean, I'm making, maybe this is a rhetorical question, but clients really appreciate that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would appreciate it if I was on the other end of that. I think um, when the planners who use our process, the, the feedback that we get in the, pro in the prospect meeting, when they, when those financial planners lay out, you know, this is what my process looks like. This is what I will guide you through and help you to figure out. The feedback that we get from the advisors um, of what the clients say in that prospect meeting is that they just feel this huge sense of relief that they don't have to come into the financial planning office 
already knowing what their goals are, what their priorities are, that they're going to be guided through a process to figure it out is such a huge relief to them. Um, and, and adults, this, this is, um, this is from principles of adult learning. The theory yeah. of principles of adult learning is adults do not want to be told what to do. And even though I, I, I get pushback on this from advisors because I, they say, well, they come into us from, for advice. And I literally have, um, you know, people ask me, what is, what is my advice? What should they do? And I understand that. I understand it. But as an adult, uh, there is a, a level of disengagement that an ad, whether they're aware of it consciously um, or not, there's a level of disengagement that happens when somebody has told them what to do. When you say, you should do this, when you should all over them, I've heard somebody say that before, um, that there's a level of resistance that, it, that is immediately um, uh, present. It could be a small level of resistance or it could be a big level of resistance, but on whatever level level it is there, adults um, want to be in charge of their own decisions. The sense of autonomy is super important um, when you are counseling, consulting, advising somebody. And Marty Kurtz, um, I, I don't think he was the original person who said this, but he says it in a lot of his presentations and it just struck me as so true. He says, advice kills conversation. Mm. And if you think about that for a second, it makes so much sense because when you give advice, it's like you're saying, I've heard, okay, I've heard enough. I understand your situation. I know what you're thinking or I get it. I get it. Here's what you should do. Like, I don't need to hear anymore. And here's what you should do. And the conversation stops there. You know, um, it's, it's no longer kind of a, a two way street, but if we are in a position in which we're facilitating their level of understanding, their level of awareness, helping them to understand the pros and cons of each decision, and then giving them the reins to make their own decision. Um, uh, you know, people really love that. They feel that they are in control. And of course you will get um, clients from time to time that will just say, just tell me what you think I should do in those sorts of situations you know, I, I strongly believe advisors are certainly welcome to give their opinions, but, but stated as ju just that this is what I would do because, um, you know, given your three choices here, uh, it's, it's totally up to you. Um, but my opinion is that, you know, if it were my choice, I would go with this. That's totally, that's totally fine to do. Um, but as long as you are laying out the options, the pros and cons of the options, and giving the final say to the client, then that, in my eyes, is acting as a fiduciary. And this is, you know, this is what we're helping advisors to ultimately do: um, guide their clients to clarity, understanding, and making decisions for themselves, and building up this strong quality of motivation. This strong the strong motivation to take action. And that's when we're seeing 
the research is showing us, we've done, you know, research on how this affects the relationships um, between the planner and the client. Uh, this is this research is showing strong statistical correlation to building trust and commitment between the, the client and the planner. It's also leading to it, it shows strong statistical correlation to um, let's see if I can remember all six of these business case variables, um, strong statistical correlation to retention, meaning that client will not leave that advisor, um, to satisfaction with the services that they're receiving. So um, they're 100% satisfied uh, with with the, with the advisor and the services they're receiving. They feel um, more open to sharing both financial, their financial information with that advisor, as well as personal information. So strong, stronger statistical correlation to that feeling of openness. And then also to referrals. They, these are uh, clients who are saying that they are more likely to refer this advisor to friends and family, and then also to follow through. So they have much higher levels of following through on the recommendations. Uh, so the research is there. There's scientific proof that of the effectiveness of, of ha taking this sort of approach in with financial planning. So one thing I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, I hear a lot of advisors talk about um, how there's a bias against young advisors and not even just the bias, but young advisors saying, you know, we only want to work with our generation. We can't relate to the older generation. What are kind of your thoughts on that in this context? Well, I think that that becomes a non-issue with a holistic approach and the financial planner acting as a facilitator to this higher level of awareness and clarity and leading the client to make their own decisions. The, the advisor can doesn't have, uh, doesn't have to be the expert, you know, anymore that, that they are simply facilitating a process. And so it doesn't matter the age or even stage of the professional's career, um, uh, to be able to, to facilitate this, this kind of, um, process with the client, um, the, the, the thing that they need to, well, there's two things that the advisor, um, is important for the advisor. One, that they have the expertise in the financial aspect, because when you do get to the stage in which you want to lay out the financial strategies, you need to be well-educated in that area. So that's important. So if the fear is that the young advisor doesn't have that education, then that's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. But if they are a CFP, if they have the education and if they have the support of, you know, um, of people around them that have that experience and they have resources to go to, to give sound advice, then, then that shouldn't matter. And the other area that a financial planner should always continue to work on it is improving their facilitation skills, you know, improving their communication skills and, and, um, facilitating this, um, reaching higher levels of self-awareness. So it can be conducted by anybody at any age. In fact, I think that this is why, um, 
you know, this is one of the reasons that advisors seek our assistance in this area. Um, we oftentimes get um, advisors who've been in the industry for many, many years, and they have built their business and they have strong relationships with their clients. And over the years, they've learned by basically hit or miss um, how to lead these types of conversations. They, they've learned how to do it intuitively and, and, um, and navigate those conversations to identify the relevant information that is necessary. You know, they've learned how to do that over many, many years. And now they're looking at their succession planning and how do I bring in a younger financial planner who doesn't have these years of experience, how, how am I going to bring them in and know that they're going to have the same meaningful life conversations with their clients? How, how are they going to know how to navigate those important conversations when they haven't had the years to figure it out? Well, that's, often why they find Money Quotient to be a really helpful resource because the young advisor can use our process, the sequence of questionnaires, as um, a framework for guiding those conversations. You know, regardless of your skill level, you will still get the outcomes that are intended with this process, whether you're really masterful in communications or i mean we even get very seasoned financial planners who believe in the value of these conversations but they have self-proclaimed that they are very poor in their communication skills and in navigating these conversations so they look to our process as well as helping to provide that framework um, for guiding these conversations and getting to that important information. Um, so, you know, it's great for bringing on young professionals and providing them with a pathway to gain that experience and understand the value of those conversations. It's also great for firms that have multiple advisors um, where they want to create a consistent client experience across the firm. So their firm can be, you know, known for this experience. Uh, so every advisor can use this framework to guide their conversations, but it's also still flexible enough for them to infuse their own personality into it. So even though it provides like a structure for the client meeting process and a structure for getting to important outcomes, um, each advisor is going to navigate those conversations a little bit differently because it's their own personality that they infuse into it. Um, so there is some flexibility within, within the process as well. You know, and I, I can kind of speak to that a little bit, you know, being such a young advisor when I bought those practices, I did, I didn't use your guys's program, but I, used a lot of those basic concepts. And it's surprising if you just listen to people and you just really take the time, like you're saying, to get to know them and like what's important to them and what motivates them. That's what people care about more than the age of the advisor across the table from them. Right. And I do think too, that, um, you know, be earlier, you said that it kind of takes the pressure off the advisor in a way. Um, and 
it 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 does in in a lot of different ways i'm thinking also legally <laughs> so when the client is making the decisions and those decisions are documented there will be a lot less reason for people to come back with lawsuits on that advisor as well um uh i don't know why that just came up in my head but it came up in my head like this is um also a way to protect the advisor and and to demonstrate fiduciary duty this is what you said is important this was your decision that you made and i'm helping you i have helped you to facilitate the decision that you made so one thing you had said that kind of it was interesting to me where you you were talking about how when advisors want to get better they need to be focusing on these interpersonal skills and 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 focusing on how to be a better facilitator. And that's something I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot of. It's, you know, if advisors want to get better, they need to go get their EA or another designation or something like that. So can you talk a little bit more about, from your perspective, what can advisors do to get better faster? And uh, what are the resources out there for that? I, I mean, it is very important to continue to keep up on the um, financial education and understand the trends that are happening in the industry and new, you know, products and all of that, 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 that are available so that you can really give a current and accurate perspective when giving recommendations to clients. That's, that's all important. But the more that this side of the profession becomes commoditized, the more these advisors will not necessarily be able to differentiate themselves. So a question that's come up several times in our trainings or at conferences is, does the advice actually change if you go through this process? Would you make different recommendations? Like if you pulled in, you know, the quantitative information, did all the calculations, entered them into you know, saw their general situation and made recommendations. Would your recommendations be different if you spent the time to do this more enhanced discovery process? And the answer is they may or they may not be different. I honestly think that a lot of the recommendations would likely be the same, whether you did it one way or the other. However, what is totally different is that once you have an understanding of a better understanding of this individual, the way in which you present your recommendations drastically changes because now you're aligning it with what's important to them and you're aligning it with their values and their goals and their vision. And they now have a deeper level of ownership of that financial plan than they did when it was just being spit out by calculators or software programs. And their relationship with you as the advisor, because you are showing them how each piece of the financial plan directly relates to their life, their relationship to you becomes much stronger. They see that you understand what's important to them and you understand the direction they're trying to go. And they will be far less likely to want to move to some other advisor who has lower fees because this other advisor does not know them as well as you do. So they'll be less tempted to go towards, you know, the, the smaller fees or, you know, 
more bells and whistles technology wise if that if that is there the other big difference is that the building of the motivation on the client's part their excitement about their future grows and their motivation to follow through on the recommendations is a huge difference um, between not doing this sort of a process and doing this sort of a process. Yes, the ultimate recommendations may end up being the same, but there is definitely a big difference between the relationship that you form to the way you present your recommendations and um, the likelihood of keeping those clients long-term. So that, in a roundabout way, is why I feel that it is important to spend some time focusing on building that client experience and how do you increase your skills around facilitating these conversations and making sure that you're hitting all the important parts. And, you know, there's lots of opportunities to continue your learning. And this is something, this is not something that you just learn and then you know how to do and you just do. It is it is something that requires continuing education. It's a lifelong learning sort of thing. And there's a lot of different avenues and ways that you can go about it. There's a, a bunch of fantastic books and resources out there. Now at all the FPA conferences, they, they certainly have recognized the importance of it. And so they're infusing a lot of sessions around communications and building strong relationships and the qualitative side of the data gathering processes is becoming um, much more recognized as important these national industry conferences so keeping your eye out for those and my suggestion would be you know when you go to these conferences focus on those um, sessions because you know the the quantitative sessions, you can get a lot of that information online, to be honest. You know, you can um, seek out some of the sponsors that, sorry, ugh, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, <laughs> but you can <laughs> seek out some of these sponsors that they have at these conferences and ask them to give you an online demonstration of their products, of what they're, you know, offering and, and learn about what their company researches and focuses on. They are more than willing to provide that information to you, I'm sure anytime that you need it. And so you don't, however, have the opportunity to always get the education and skills from some of these more qualitative types of sessions. They aren't as readily available. So those would be the areas that I would recommend seeking out. There's tons of great books to read. And there's, besides ourselves, Money Quotient, we have webinars that we're conducting all the time that um, are quick and easy ways for people to get some infusion into this qualitative perspective and world. But be besides Money Quotient, there's also... Other programs, Susan Bradley has a program called Sudden Money who that's very popular and very much along our same philosophy. They, they're very different programs, but they are very complementary of each other uh, as well. Same with George Kinder's program, which he calls Evoke. Again, a, a very um, different kind of program, but very complementary to what we do. So there's different offerings uh, and different ways to continue to learn more and get educated um, in this 
side of the business. Looking forward and you being kind of on that research side, like what are you working on now that, or what do you see in the future that just really gets you excited? Oh man, there's so many things. There are so many things. Um, I have uh, so many ideas for expanding the work that we do here at Money Quotient. A couple of recent things. One, I just completed the CFP requirement. So I'm now a CFP. Yay. And congratulations. Thank you. And my intention for, for going through that coursework and becoming a CFP was not to, to be an actual financial planner and take on my own clients, but what it was for the deepening of my understanding of all the various financial elements that planners help with. I, and going into the program, I thought at the very least doing this program will provide me even just a little more credibility in my speaking career and for my consulting. But I knew that I would get more out of it. I knew that it would provide me with some more ideas of ways that I could either do some deeper consulting with firms on integrating the qualitative and the quantitative side of things together, or it might um, provide me with some ideas of how to develop some new resources for financial planners, and it has done both. I, I've come to recognize that advisors' quantitative data gathering forms are very poorly put together, <laughs> and <laughs> they they... There's no kind of research that has been put behind how to make an effective quantitative data gathering forms. And what I've noticed over the years of consulting um, advisors and their firms on integrating you know, our tools into their process, I've gotten to see a lot of the other resources that they've used. And I've come to notice that a lot of the quantitative data gathering forms um, can actually imply a lot of biases that could be off-putting for clients. And there is also a lot of assumptions that are being made, both about the client's level of knowledge. So it could be that, they, that a lot of these quantitative forms are using financial jargon and just making the assumption that the client knows this, which um, can be a really bad way to start a relationship. If the client comes into your office feeling dumb or feeling as though they should know something that they don't know, that is not a great, great way to start a relationship. Um, they also make assumptions about the, the person's perspective and what their goals will be. Um, a great example of that might be education funding. So some of these quantitative data gathering forms make the assumption that the person will want to fully fund their clients or their children's education. And some people have pretty strong opinions about that. Maybe they put themselves through school and they learned a lot about the value of money and the value of hard work. And they want their children to learn some of the same lessons that they did. So they have opinions about funding education. And so these, you know, these sorts of assumptions can really be off putting for clients and could, um, create some mental obstacles right at the beginning of the relationship. So, um, in a nutshell, I think that there could be a lot, uh, a lot that can be done to create 
quantitative data gathering forms that are far more engaging and receptive to clients and also um, help to make more of a link between the quantitative information and the qualitative information. So that is a project I would like to begin working on that I'm very excited about. Um, another is um, starting to form some relationships with some of the universities that have started some very interesting research that um, we're hoping to be a part of as well. And one is out of the University of Georgia and Kansas State University. They're working together and formulating this financial therapy program. And they've for formed financial therapy association as well that we are members of. And some of the research that they are working on is actually physically physiological research on what is going on physiologically with people who are having financial planning discussions, specifically couples. So they are hooking up um, individuals, in, couples with um, devices on their fingers that, that are monitoring their heart rate and sweat levels. And they have them um, with those suction cups <laughs> on their bodies as well. And then they're having um, conversations with financial planners and talking about their futures and discussing, you know, various um, aspects of their financial plan to see, um, to see how they're responding. And it's, and they're getting some very interesting results that not all the time is the, the verbal or, nonverbal responses that people are giving, you know, what, the way that they sit in their chair or the way that they are facing or discussing things, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the level of stress that they're feeling. So that has been some really interesting findings that they're coming in, you know, just another lens to look through in understanding how to create an environment in which a client feels comfortable and can reveal information to the financial planner. As we wrap up, is there any other piece of advice or any other thoughts that you have to the new or young planner coming into financial planning? Well, the first thing that popped into my mind is that I would encourage them to check out our scholarship program. We have a Ken Gillespie, a legacy fund that we provide I think about two scholarships a year to attend our Fundamentals of Financial Life Planning scholarship. And I always hope that we have a lot of young professionals who apply for it because I love to support the young planners who are shaping this profession. The other advice that I would have is if you don't have the financial means to attend these conferences and go to these trainings and stuff, then there is plenty of resources to get your hands on to begin your reading and understanding. And, and I am happy to provide a recommended reading list as well, that there's so many good books that can begin your education and stuff that you can already apply whether you're able to get to a training or not. As a reminder, if you're interested in the Money Quotient program, be sure to apply for their Ken Gillespie Scholarship to attend the Fundamentals of Financial Life Planning training in September. The deadline for the scholarship is June 30th, and you can find more details in the show notes at financialplannerpodcast.com or by going to Money Quotient's website. And as always, thank you for listening.